I came to challenge a man, not a beardless boy. I give you a year's grace to grow your beard. Twelve sweet, short months of life to do with as you will. But when the seasons have come full circle, we shall meet again. And you shall pay your debt to me. Hello folks, and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash, and today I am greatly gladdened to be gabbing on about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This long, alliterative poem is one of the most famous works in Arthurian literature. It tells the story of one of Arthur's nephews, Sir Gawain, who during the New Year's festivities at Camelot accepts a challenge from a mysterious visitor, the Green Knight. The challenge is an absurd beheading game. Gawain may deliver one axe blow to the visitor's neck as long as he agrees that the visitor might return that blow a year later. Gawain takes on the test and beheads the challenger. But then, to the horror of Arthur's court, the decapitated knight picks up his head and tells Gawain he'll see him in a year. The rest of the poem tells of Gawain's journey to the Green Knight's chapel to uphold his side of the bargain. On the way, he stays at a strange castle and finds himself subject to another game, one that will further test and tempt him. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was written by an anonymous poet in the late 14th century, but its manuscript remained hidden away in private libraries until it was finally published in 1839. This was a Middle English version by Sir Frederick Madden. It took more than another 50 years before the first translation into modern English appeared. This was a prose adaptation by Jesse Weston. But gradually, Gawain's fame grew, and now there are many translations available by authors such as J.R.R. Tolkien, W.S. Merwin, and former Ear Read This guest, Michael Smith. Poet laureate Simon Armitage produced a celebrated translation of his own in 2009, saying of this long-kept secret that it had become one of the jewels in the crown of English literature. Gawain has been adapted into films, operas and plays, the last of which brings me on to my special guest for this week, writer and actor Debbie Cannon, who has based her one-woman play, The Green Knight, on today's text. To hear more about Debbie's play, tune in again tomorrow for our extended interview. There's also a link to Debbie's website in the episode description box below. For today, though, we begin by asking what we know about the anonymous author of this poem. Well, there's lots of clues. Um, the dialect of the poem is sort of Northwest Midlands, so sort of Cheshire, Peak District, Wirral, that area. So the theory is that he was probably from that part of the country. The text is sort of part of what's called the alliterative revival. That's quite hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> alliterative revival uh, in the 14th century. And, and that was sort of based more in the, the north of England than down in the south. So we can sort of place him up there. There is only the one, or, you know, I should say her possibly because we don't know, mm. but probably a him. Obviously, we can tell from the text that he's got knowledge of lots of courtly pursuits there's there's lots of detail about hunting and the taking apart of animals after the hunt there's lots of detail about court uh lots of dwelling on you know the wealth of of the food there oh the food descriptions are fantastic um mm -hmm. and and the, you know the clothing um so it suggests he's probably the poet probably has a background they are. The poem survives in only the one manuscript, probably not scribed by the poet himself. And it feels very much like something that was probably listened to and delivered 
quite probably in a courtly setting. So we can sort of deduce a little bit about what the poet's background might be and, and mm. you know, where they were from that. But other than that, there's not an awful lot we know. The poem has been dated to the late 14th century, during the so-called alliterative revival. This refers to a proliferation of verse modelled on the old Anglo-Saxon metres, found in poems such as Beowulf. Some critics have suggested that the Gawain poet might have been one of John of Gaunt's entourage. John of Gaunt you might remember from our episode on Richard II. He was Richard's uncle, one of the five sons of Edward III. Gaunt was the Duke of Lancaster, and one of the wealthiest men alive. His brother-in-law was the poet Geoffrey Chaucer, who was a member of the court of Edward III and Richard II. One of the reasons some critics give for suggesting the Gawain poet may have also been connected to the Duke is that Gaunt's influence was particularly strong in areas connected to this alliterative revival. He had castles in Wales, the Midlands and the North. The poem also refers to the Order of the Garter, established by Gaunt's father, Edward III. We'll touch on the order a little bit more later on. J.R.R. Tolkien's measure of this anonymous poet was as follows. He was a man of serious and devout mind, though not without humour. He had an interest in theology and some knowledge of it, though an amateur knowledge, perhaps, rather than a professional. He had Latin and French, and was well enough read in French books, both romantic and instructive. But his home was in the West Midlands of England. So much his language shows, and his metre, and his scenery. Whether or not this man was on familiar terms with John of Gaunt, the subject matter of his poem can be read as a commentary on Gaunt's family. As Michael Smith writes, Depending on when it was written, it can be viewed as a contemporary reflection on the decline of Edward III, as a guide for the young Richard II misled by powerful and detested friends, or possibly even as an allegory of, or apologia for, the deposition and death of Richard II at the hands of Henry Bolingbroke. The, the poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, is, as I say, it's in, it's in the one surviving manuscript, which almost didn't survive, in fact, because it was in a library, a private library for, for centuries. And in 1731, there was a, a, a huge fire and actually, you know, quite a lot of manuscripts were lost, but uh, this one survived. But there's, there's three other poems in with Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And the theory is that probably they're all written by the same poet, but there's no kind of firm evidence for that. We can just sort of people assume that based on the dialect and the sort of similarities and the themes um mm. and the other poems are are very are quite religious so again that gives us some kind of clue to what the interests were of this poet but you know having said that they're all everything that, that he's writing about the themes and the sort of the genres he, he's using are are ones that are very sort of popular in that period so Mm. It may tell us about him and what his interests were. It may just be that it tells us about what people were interested in reading and, and hearing about then. The other poems are known as Pearl, Patience and Cleanness. The fire Debbie mentioned took place in the forbiddingly named Ashburnham House, almost claiming Gawain and severely damaging the manuscript of Beowulf at the same time. The manuscript containing not only Gawain but these other three poems is known as the Cotton Nero manuscript A.X., the naming comes after its former owner, Sir Robert Cotton, and his idiosyncratic cataloguing system. AX refers to the manuscript's place on a particular shelf, and Nero refers to which Roman emperor's bust was sitting on top of that shelf. Though miraculous that it survived at all, the manuscript is in precarious condition, faded and smudged due to age and the pages being closed before the ink was dry. According to translator Brian Stone, many of the blurred letters can only be interpreted by reading the blotted impression of them with a mirror. It is a small irony that a poem that stresses the importance of the renewal that comes with the passage of the seasons 
now resides in the British Library, sustained by a rigidly monitored climate. Um, so which, which, which translations have you read or which translation? Is it Simon Armitage? Uh, I've read Armitage and yeah. I've read um, Brian Stone. Oh, wow, and, you've done well. And Michael Smith. Um, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, and then a little bit of Tolkien's, but I haven't finished yeah, that. Yeah, uh-huh. so uh-huh. I think I think I mean that they do a fantastic job of, of sort of echoing that. Yeah, as opposed to the sort of the, the muscular quality of, of 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 the sound of it and keeping the uh, the alliterative beat. So yes, I mean it gives you it gives you a really good impression of of what the original would have sounded like the original language is is, is really quite hard. <laughs> yeah. I can remember seeing it the first time and kind of thinking, oh, this is going to be tough to read. But but again, lovely. I mean, the sound of it is, is, is gorgeous. Let's talk a little about that alliterative beat. The 101 stanzas of the poem vary in line length, the lines themselves not limited to a certain number of syllables. Instead, the lines tend to have four stresses or beats and are split in two by a caesura, meaning a midline pause. Two of the four stresses come before the caesura, two after. The first three tend to alliterate, but sometimes all four do. As is often the case, this is a template, not a rule. Some lines have less alliteration or more, and sometimes there are two alliterating schemes in one line. But the standard line is as follows, from the first stanza of Mary Boroff's translation. The knight that had knotted the nets of deceit was impeached for his perfidy, proven most true. Both lines have four stresses, the first three of which alliterate. Knight knotted nets, impeached, perfidy, proven. Less common are lines that alliterate one letter before the caesura and a different letter afterwards, such as within a mount, on a mound, bright amid boughs. Some of the most pleasing music comes when one alliteration overlaps another. Now by heaven, said he, it is bleak hereabouts. This cycling of alliterating sound is all the more effective in a poem which is methodically circular in structure. The very last alliterative line of the poem echoes the very first, and the action is set over the cycle of a year. One innovation that sets Gawain aside from other works in the alliterative revival is the bob and wheel at the end of each stanza. This is a short rhyming quatrain begun with a little iamb or bob to kick off the rhyme scheme. To show you how it sounds, here are the last two non-rhyming alliterative lines of one of Simon Armitage's stanzas, followed by the bob and wheel. His stomach and waist were slender and sleek. In fact, in all features he was finely formed, it seemed. There's the bob, it seemed. Amazement seized their minds, no soul had ever seen a knight of such a kind, entirely emerald green. The phrase bob and wheel was first used by Edwin Guest, writing in the 19th century, and since has been applied to other poems using the same technique. But it is an especially neat bit of coinage in relation to Gawain. Later in the poem, Gawain will place his faith in a supposedly magical green girdle, and will discover that his aunt, and Arthur's half-sister, Morgan Le Fay, was pulling the strings all along. Bob and wheel, with its connection to spinner's thread, couldn't be more apt for this particular story. Though contemporary with Chaucer, the English of the Gawain poet is much less familiar to us than that of the Canterbury Tales. The vernacular of the alliterative style was influenced not only by the obscure remnants of Anglo-Saxon, but also scraps of French, Irish and Scandinavian dialects. Aspects of the story like the Green Man and the Beheading Game are found across many different cultures, suggesting, as Laura L. Howes says, that underlying all of these stories is a fluid layer of oral folktale. J.R.R. Tolkien took a lifelong interest in the writings of the Gawain poet, producing a Middle English version of his work very early in his career, and a modern English translation much later. 
As a keen inventor of languages himself, he was particularly drawn to the philological origins of the poem, and it's hard not to notice a few entries in its glossary that he may have dusted off for himself. Elrod, for example, and Middle-earth. I get, I get the impression from, from speaking to Michael and also from reading that the Gawain poet is pretty standout amongst his, his, his or her peers. What is it, in your opinion, that makes this poet or this poem um, just a little bit more attractive or, or interesting than, than, say, a, the alliterative Mortarthur or something like that? Well, I think, I think for, for modern audiences, it's, it's just a fantastic story. I mean, it's an absolutely cracking story and it's it's told beautifully that there, there are passages of, of wonderful poetry in it. I mean, you, you'll have noticed, you'll seen yourself, um, you know, sections like the descriptions of the court, um, the description of the seasons passing, which is just beautiful. So you have that. But I think in terms of the pacing of the story, it's really, really beautifully done. So there's that. I think that the characters are in it are very strong and quite interesting. And, you know, that there's, there's a kind of psychological ambiguity there as well. We're sort of observing them and wondering what they're going to do. So what will Gawain do when he's sort of met with these challenges that he faces? And he, you know, obviously the he, he set himself these standards and the goal of being the perfect knight. And we watch him not quite getting there. Um, so that kind of character arc for him, I think, is is really appealing and something that's that's quite familiar for, for a modern audience as well. But yes, essentially, I think it's the story. It's a, yeah. it's a great read, and I mean, I can remember when I when I read it the first time before we went. I went to university, and I sat down and read it over the summer, and I read a little bit every day. And it was a very tough read because you're sort of looking up every second word, but the the storyline of it sort of keeps you going. So for for the getting into the sto- the story, then did he have he or she? I should keep saying uh, sources or can is it possible to even speculate with with so much obviously lost material? But do do aspects of this story, like the beheading game, crop up elsewhere? Yes, they do. Certainly, the beheading game is uh, something that pops up in in other literature. Obviously, Gawain as a character has—I mean, he's he's coming up in uh, other Arthurian writing through this period, sometimes uh-huh. with a similar presentation, sometimes slightly different. So, so yes, for for the the audience sort of listening to the story, I think they would have had a lot of context to sort of bring to it. Either before or after, um, how does how does Gawain compare to to where he is elsewhere? Is, is this is this consistent portrait of him with other Arthurian? Um... In some ways, I think so. Uh, he, he does have this reputation as the very courtly knight, a knight who has a bit of a way with the ladies. There's... I mean that that's played with. For example, there's uh, there's a quite well known story about Gawain and uh, a loathly lady who's sometimes known as Dame, Dame Ragnall, and basically the, the sort of the gist of it is that he, through through various machinations, ends up being indebted to uh, um, an old hag. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Who he meets in the woods, and he, um, she gives him the choice of either she, he has to marry her, but he, he has the choice of either having her as young and beautiful at night and 
old and uh, unattractive during the day or vice versa. So he has to make a decision between whether he wants the young, beautiful wife at night in his bed or whether he wants the image of the young, beautiful wife that other people see sort of during the day. Um, wow. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a toughie. Um, and he ends up... Uh, he attracts a few conundrums, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. Oh, Gawain's life is just so full of ups and downs. Um, and yeah. he, in the end, he he sort of, uh, he gives a choice to the, the woman, at least in some of the mm. versions, I think. And oh. by doing that, the spell's broken and he gets her young and beautiful all the time. So, you know, it's not it's not what you go politically correct. But, um, no. it's, <laughs> but yeah, so there's, there's kind of lots of playing around this idea of Gawain and his relationship with women and and as the courteous mm. knight i mean he's arthur's nephew he's very involved in um the sort of the myths around camelot and uh, the downfall of of arthur as well so so yeah th- there's a real kind of there's a very deep mythology around him like most arthurian characters gawain seems quite different depending on where we find him in the canon In Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, we find Gawain as Arthur's nephew, son of the king's half-sister Morgan, and King Lot of Orkney and Lothian. Gawain's death comes helping Arthur fight Mordred, who here is Gawain's brother, not Arthur's bastard son. We've talked about this moment in our episode on the alliterative Mort Arthur. His death is a tragedy, as among knights Gawain is a paragon of virtue, chivalry and honour. Elsewhere in the canon, writers like Chrétien de Troyes depicted him as good-hearted but easily distracted by women, and rather pedantic in his obeying knightly code to the letter. A comic side to Gawain, particularly in regard to his dealings with women, emerges in several texts. In the Vulgate Grail cycle, he is depicted as arrogant and foolish, and in the prose Tristan, he is degraded even further into a debased villain who treats women brutally. Although in our poem he is portrayed in a positive light, his reputation is repeatedly questioned, almost as if certain characters have read different versions of Gawain. Lady Bertillac mockingly questions whether this is the true Sir Gawain, just as later the Green Knight taunts him for flinching, telling him, you are not Gawain. One of the tensions for the reader of this poem is observing that the lead character is handed an apparent death sentence, and yet only ever glimpsing how he feels about it. He is forced by his belief system to behave as if all is normal. As W.R.J. Bowden says, chivalric idealism cannot entertain any doubts. Whilst his principled behaviour is admirable in its way, what makes us feel for Gawain is his human side. As W.A. Davenport says, he has a sympathetic lack of aggressive self-confidence, a capacity for civilised pleasure, a stern sense of duty, and sensible, conventional moral standards. His morality fails him only when basic self-protection is at issue, when he acts in a way with which the reader is encouraged to sympathise, with sudden irrationality and gullibility. We feel for Gawain in ways rarely inspired by the knights of these legends. Too often their unflinching adherence to a patriarchal honour code makes them feel closer to Klingons than people. To modern ears, their rhetoric can sound rather like suicidal extremists, proving in endless blood-weltering sessions that they love death more than they love life. Whereas here it is that self-protectiveness that Davenport mentions, the moment when, despite his code of honour, Gawain flinches, that demonstrates here is a knight who unequivocally loves life. This is the quality which saves him in the end. And although Gawain is for the most part passive, having things done unto him, and only momentarily displaying his emotions, his love of life is communicated in the rapturous expression of the poem. Alan Renoir has said that with the possible exception of Morgan Le Fay, everyone and everything in this poem is beautiful. The Green Knight himself is beautiful, terrifying though he be. We begin in celebration, a 
sumptuous Christmas feast with loving descriptions of dances and gift-giving, and of course, food. But once Gawain receives his sentence, the world doesn't suddenly cloud over. If anything, its beauty is amplified by the sudden deadline placed upon experiencing it. I forget the exact phrasing, but John Updike once said words to the effect of all writing is sanctifying, the act of description, an act of worship. The poet expresses what Gawain can't, but he shows his hand when he accepts the girdle from Lady Bertillac. The girdle, she says, will protect its wearer, and by accepting it, Gawain betrays his doubts. His journey has disillusioned him of romantic and chivalric ideals, and here he seems to lose faith in God's protection as well. At the end of the poem, Gawain discovers the Green Knight and Bertillac are one and the same, and worse, that the lady of the castle was in on the ruse the whole time. In his shame, he proves the true measure of himself. As David Farley Hills says, Gawain showing a sense of guilt in spite of the mitigating circumstances shows his coming as near as is humanly possible to the ideal of Christian knighthood. Well, let's get to the uh, the, the Green Knight entering this. He's, he's, a, he's a sort of direct challenge to Arthur's friendly chivalric court. I've seen him, the, the knight, described as variously as a kind of force of nature, a chaotic force of nature or, or a downright satanic monster. I was going to just ask, how, how do you see him? Well, as, as a reader of the poem, I think what's interesting for me is that he's, even though he's terrifying, he's still, mm. he's still attractive yeah. <laughs> uh, in the sense that he's, he's, he's presented as still being well presented. He's still knightly. And I, so that's, that's interesting, I think. That even you know he could have come in as 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 an even wilder figure in some ways, but but the poet chooses to sort of talk about how you know his 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 clothing and his presentation are sort of all put together well, uh, based on what he wants to do. There's also the side the mention that he comes in and he wants to play a game, and I, I always mm. think that's really interesting. I've come to play a Christmas game, so there's the real undercurrent of danger I think with him but there's that playfulness as well I suppose yeah. it's a bit like wrestling with a tiger cub it's like you know are you playing and it could just kind of tip over into being deadly at any yeah. point um so I think he's really interesting from that point of view and that that was the kind that was one of the things that I really honed in on when I was reworking it for my my show so yeah because he, he's not a he could be a, a slavering cannibalistic ogre could, could be like mm. um the giant of Saint, is it Saint Mont Michel in um, the Mort Arthur, but he's not like that at all. He, like you say, he's well spoken, and yeah. that's almost more subversive, isn't it? Because it, yeah, he's, he's ridiculing this sh the chivalry side of things. Yeah, but you get a sense that he's still coming from a similar social level. He's well bred. Mm. Yeah, can I ask ask just about the the green? I I heard. Uh, I think it was. Simon Armitage um, saying something like, well, what other colour could he have been? <laughs> like every other colour doesn't make any sense. But um, why, why do you think he's, he's green? Well, I mean, there's, there's, I guess with so many things in the poem, there's a range of possibilities. Um, so mm. green was one of the traditional colours of the devil. So it certainly mm. takes us to, to that sort of hellish context. It's, it's the colour of nature and nature's, uh, you know, a, a real presence, a really important aspect of, of the poem. So that kind of naturalness, I suppose, could be contrasted with possible 
artificiality in the court. So, and, and obviously we've got kind of the tradition of the, the green man, which again, I, I don't know an awful lot about, but, but you know, obviously, you know, we know in, in sort of like carvings and uh, stonework of the time, we've, we've got the green man coming up over and over again. So there's, there's the wild man, there's the, the devilish connection, there's the, the connection to nature, I guess. And I suppose it's just very a very strange colour, isn't it, mm. uh, in some ways? And, and a real contrast to the colours that we're hearing about in Camelot, especially, you know, in, in that first fit, where we get a sense of all the kind of the, the opulence of it. And it's Christmassy, I suppose. <laughs> Absolutely true. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. If you're enjoying what you've heard so far, why not consider becoming a patron of the podcast, which enables you to access exclusive bonus episodes of Ear Read This, including shows on people like Raymond Chandler, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Ovid. To sign up, simply visit patreon.com slash earreadthis. Now, on with the show. The significance of the Green Knight has long been puzzled over. He appears in two later works, a rhyming poem from a century later, seemingly cribbed off this one, and a ballad from the 17th century based on that meaning that our Green Knight is the earliest surviving one. However, green men had been traditional figures for centuries, usually associated with fertility and rebirth. Conventionally either wearing or made out of foliage, the faces of green men can be seen leering out of second-century ruins in the Middle East. Deities and mythical figures as various as Osiris, Odin and Father Christmas have all been described in similar ways to the green man. In pagan religions, he embodies the changes and renewal that come with the seasons. Such a figure might seem like a clear-cut antagonist to Arthur's Christian Camelot, but the Green Knight is presented with a certain ambiguity. As Terry McAllendon writes, If Bertilac's castle and all its inhabitants are to be regarded as epitomising that insidious substitution of appearance for reality, which is the chief evil in Christian myth, why should Gawain regard it as an answer to his prayer to Mary for guidance and shelter, an almost heavenly mansion? The heavenly mansion of Bertilac's castle seems to pointedly reflect King Arthur's court. Both are the scene of elaborate feasting and celebrations. Each has its king and its lady of the castle, first Guinevere, then Lady Bertilac, both of whom are placed on similar pedestals of peerless beauty. Then there is the old crone Morgan le Fay, a sinister parallel of Arthur's magician, Merlin. The pagan mythology surrounding the green man doesn't necessarily contradict the Christian spirit of the poem. Indeed, according to Brian Stone, the crucifixion and resurrection gain in force and meaning from the persistence in pre-Christian myth of the idea of the slain and resurrected God. The authenticity of Sir Gawain as a medieval Christian poem is not in doubt because the green man is vital to certain fertility cults, or because our hero still retains some of the attributes of a sun god or reborn fertility deity. This might be um, completely off, but reading it and and going through the different versions, I get a bit of a... Um, once the challenge has been laid down, Gawain finds he has been sort of tricked because uh, the Green Knight can't be killed by cutting off his head. He then is sort of compelled to wait for a year before he can go and meet what he assumes is, will be his death. There seems to be a bit of a hypochondriac whiff throughout the like a real fear of death and a kind of obsession about time and also a sense of having no help from from the people around him i actually wrote down a line it was something like knights in the court whilst they're talking to him as the date approaches mentioned only matters of mirthful import 
So that all they could do was joke. They couldn't actually ask him what it was like to know, you know, yeah. this Christmas you're, de- mm-hmm. you're dead. It, does that ring true? That that sort of kind of death obsession? Perhaps yeah, too? absolutely. I, I, that I, that was something that I really tuned into as well. I think, mm. um, and that that passage about the passing of the seasons at the beginning of the second fit, uh, and mm. I, you know where you've sort of homed in there. I think absolutely, um, it's it's really strong there. The idea that the seasons go round and round and come back, and we see you know Earth sort of flourishing, and then everything dies, but we know it's going to come back in the spring. But for Gawain and for for human beings we just have to go forward in a straight line we can't yeah. come back to that beginning point so this this uh i think the contrast there and that idea of walking onwards which is inevitably going to lead to death in the end one way or another is really strong and yeah i, th- I think that's a that's a really important thing that comes through in the poem for me and and then it seems ironic really that when he he reaches this castle as he's marching as he's he's questing out for the green knight and he is he sort of has a game within the game that he starts having to play with with Lady uh, Bertilac. Mm. It seems that this game, which we later discover, is almost an extension of his uh, of the one he's 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 uh, questing after. It actually he, he seems to treat it like a distraction, almost like it is a, a way of pausing time. He's inside again. He doesn't see the passing of the seasons, and he gets to play this game, which he obviously finds weird and challenging. But it does, it's not going to result in his death. Mm. Um, that also seems very true of fear of what might happen to your body, fear of natural invasion. Yeah, How can you just absolutely. play a game and put put life on hold and and escape. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. And I suppose thinking about it, when he's he's when he's in the castle and he's we've got those three nights uh, where he uh, he stays at the castle in the three mornings when he has the meetings with a lady. He's as you say, he's kind of stuck in something circular rather than yeah. moving forward. So he's been able to kind of step out of it for a little while. That's really interesting. Yes, he's able to, he's got, he, he sort of talks about the the meeting at the Green Chapel, doesn't he, right at the beginning of his visit to the castle and Lord Bertilac, uh, his host sort of says to him, oh, well, don't worry, that's fine. I'll get you there. You'll be fine. And he can go, oh, it's fine. I'll just uh, rest. And then it's it's sort of at the end of that period when he sort of picks it up again, doesn't he? And says, well, you know, now I need to think about about going. Um mm. I think what's what's really interesting about that third fit when all of that action's happening as well is that yes, Gawain feels as though he's stepping back, but we've got the the bedroom scenes sort of paralleled by the the hunting scenes as well, which are really brutal. And we can see, yeah. you know, Lord Bertelat going out there with great energy and sort of, you know, getting straight in and uh, you know, brutally hunting and killing animals. So um, it's it's like Gawain thinks he stepped out of it, but actually that threat, that menace is still sort of lying alongside it, isn't it? Despite the bleakness of Gawain's apparent destiny, as W.A. Davenport says, from the start, the tone of the poem is intermittently and insidiously comic and indicates to us that the outcome, though it may be unexpected, is not to be serious. The challenge itself seems to be a cruel joke made at Gawain's expense. As the Green Knight demonstrates when he picks up his own severed head, this game is rigged. It makes a mockery of the customary challenge laid down for knights to prove their honour. This could be Gawain's sword in the stone moment, but instead it triggers an anticlimactic year-long wait for a series of pranks and humiliations. Again, comparing it to something like the alliterative Mort Arthur, where there are similar sorts of lists and luscious descriptions of food and violence, mm. and the alliterative form obviously really feeds into that and makes the most of all of the yeah. spit and gore and yeah, you know, bloody bits. 
but here it definitely seemed it didn't seem like oh here's an here's an opportunity for a good luscious dinner scene or violence scene yeah. it seemed so obviously set in contrast with these serene peculiar bedroom visits and then lots and lots lashings of gore and, and hunting yeah. and and a real sense of detail that seems with the uh, the alliteration it's when when they're listing or everything that they're doing when they're butchering these animals and so on there seems to be a, something a bit diabolical about how well the alliteration works when it's rhyming these body parts that really shouldn't go together yeah. not rhyming sorry alliterating there's yeah. uh, the wizened from the windpipe and whipped out the guts it feels almost a bit like the green knight holding up his head you know that shouldn't happen yeah. that body bit shouldn't be there yeah. um your windpipe and your guts shouldn't be put close it, it's like a really savage reminder to to Gawain yeah. that even though he's having this game with this lady which is I'm sure unsettling to him there is also this horrible kind of decay and destruction outside yeah yeah no I think that that's a really good observation actually uh-huh contrasting imagery of things linked and things not linked dominates the poem the stanzas themselves demonstrate it in the fluid, alliterative lines that could run on forever, capped by the bobbin wheels linked in rhyme. The eternal seasons and unbreakable green night are all the more beautiful to a man whose time is linear and running out. But this theme is most obviously encapsulated by two devices in the poem. First, the pentangle displayed on Gawain's shield, and secondly, the green girdle given to him by Lady Bertilac. First, the pentangle. This is a five-pointed star drawn in an unbroken line. It represents the five groups of five chivalric characteristics the knight possesses. We are told he is faultless in his five senses, his five fingers are unfailing, his faith springs from the five wounds of Christ, just as his fortitude does from the Virgin Mother's five joys conceived in Christ, namely the Annunciation, Nativity, Resurrection, Ascension and Assumption. Mary herself is painted on the inside of his shield to fill in with courage and serve as a testament to this particular knight's special respect for women. Finally, and most famously, Gawain possesses five virtues, generosity, courtesy, chastity, chivalry, and piety. Brian Stone says of the pentangle that it is the quintessence of the alchemists, old as history. It is first found scratched on Babylonian pottery from Ur, and from that time onward figures prominently in Oriental and Near Eastern religions as a mystic symbol of perfection. In the poem, the pentangle is described as an endless knot, set against the other key item, the green girdle. This is the girdle that Lady Bertilac gives to Gawain, and says it will offer him protection. Instead of being a closed, metallic knot, it can be tied and untied to fit the wearer. As Ralph Hannah III says, the pentangle, the emblem of a world where meaning is clear and exemplary, if not locked to the point of rigidity, becomes replaced by an object, the girdle, to which meaning must be assigned. Lady, when Lady Bertilac comes and, and sort of starts visiting Gawain, she seems to uh, subvert him and challenge chivalry and laws of, mm. laws of chivalry in a similar mm. way to an unkillable green knight, in a way. If yes. he comes up and tears up the the court of King Arthur at the start, she comes and sort of tears up what would be proper formal behaviour whilst mm, visiting mm -hmm. someone else's castle. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Again, I, th I think that's a really good observation. Um, if we go back and think about the pentangle and think about the, mm. the values of knighthood there, and courtesy is one of the ones that's, that's emphasised as, as being one of Gawain's qualities. And again, you know, we're sort of aware that that's, that's kind of Gawain's uh, wider, broader reputation. 
and I, I, so that's quite interesting because what what she's doing isn't she is sort of playing with the idea that he needs to remain polite towards her and obey her and I mean again I know when I was working on it on uni at university uh, one of the things that we read about was was the the idea of courtly love where knights around a lord or a king would have a, a an, an almost kind of sexual adoration of the knights that the lord's lady and mm. there's a very fine line be be between that and you know when does that tip over into being inappropriate and i think that those kind of traditions are probably playing in here as well so it's it's there's the idea that you know Gawain is, is sort of wrestling christian knighthood i think and purity and uh, perhaps an older idea of knighthood i i, I don't know but there's there's a kind mm. of a there's a there's a tension there but i think there's even a tension within that idea of courtesy so you know how far do you yield to obey the lady allow her to be your mistress and when do you kind of say actually no I'm sorry <laughs> yeah I'm yeah exactly to this now. Um, and also she's the <laughs> wife of his host so mm. he's, he has a requirement to be to be polite to her and what we hear about in the descriptions outside of the bedroom is that he is having these very kind of intimate conversations with her uh, I think the poet calls it love talking so love talking um, mm. and again they don't give detail about what that is but it sounds as though it's you know a lot of flattery a lot of potentially flirting so there's, there's that kind of public show of love talk and mm. there's, there's the awkwardness I think of can he can he manage that if it's in a more intimate setting without sort yeah. of going over um the other boundaries that he sort of has set for him. So yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, she she comes in and she pushes things to the absolute limit. And I think what's interest, an interesting question actually is how far she would have pushed this uh, mm. if Gawain had been a little bit less <laughs> um, disciplined. Yeah, absolutely. She's she's a she's a she's a disruptive force. And I think she's disruptive and she's disruptive in the amount of agent. Well, see, I, I feel she has some agency, but I suppose argue, arguably you could say that she she's only doing what she's been ordered to do by by her, uh, by men or by uh, by Morgan Le Fay, I suppose. But she 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 gets to talk a lot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, a lot more than you might find female characters talking, I think that I think that's interesting about her as well. She's she's a really intriguing character, and one of the things that, that I think that's that's kind of frustrating about the poem is that you see these characters uh, apparently acting with more agency, apparently disrupting things, and at the end it kind of gets all tied up with this. Well, Morgan Le Fay made us do it, and you're a bit like, yes, yeah, rather disappointing yeah. that, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> it's much yeah. more interesting to think that actually they were pursuing their own interests. Yeah, um, even if it was Bertilac and his wife in cahoots she's clearly yeah. making the most of it but yeah, yeah for it all to be Morgan Le Fay is a, real, a bit of a downer <laughs> <laughs> it's really yeah because yeah. uh -huh. she's she is so striking amongst other you know female characters you, mm. you mentioned the 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 tension between flattery and and love talk and then a, another level of love talk which is mm. sort of the dynamic between Guinevere Lancelot and Arthur Lancelot yeah. can always say I love Guinevere I adore her and he can yeah. say that in public, meaning more than just the usual 
um, flattery, but Guinevere often comes across as a drip or as a, you know, she either weeps or she dies or she mm. goes into hiding and she doesn't really get much to say. She's responding to Lancelot or yeah, absolutely. perhaps her most interesting moments are like lying to Arthur, which is still isn't mm. much. Mm. Um, whereas Lady Bertilac is... What, what What's so interesting about her is she completely undermines Gawain, the womanizing knight, but also totally in control. And, and she sort of seems in control to the poet as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is she kind of unprecedented in, in that way? Uh, I, I, again, I would hesitate to say unprecedented because that's quite sweeping mm. and I don't really have the, the knowledge of the literature anymore. I, I mean, I, I think there are, if we look at, for example, I mean, Chaucer has a version of the Lothly Lady story, but, uh, in, mm. uh, you know, in the Wife of Bath's tale. Um, and certainly, you know, Wife of Bath and her tale's female protagonist have have more to them. You know, they, they have a kind of a more substantial character and more agency. I was trying to think of, for example, the um, Marie de France lays and the female character she has. But again, I, I don't think we don't get the same level of character well, you know we don't get the same level of of uh, of agency and control and and uh, and and articulation i don't think mm. with them and again you know there's this there's this thing where we're we're kind of trying to guess what's what's yeah. going on with a lady yeah um and it's it's you know it's easier to sort of attribute a, a sort of a deeper psychology to her i think yeah i mean she's certainly she's she's fascinating mm yeah, and she and she has that that yeah, like you say, that kind of mystery, mm. um, which seems sort of evenly distributed throughout throughout the poem. There, there aren't clear answers, like we said earlier, that the the green seems to work pretty well on about three counts, but it's it's yeah. never dis- made absolutely clear, or perhaps it is, yeah. and we've lost our frame of reference. But sure. it doesn't seem like we have to marry to into one. Uh-huh. Oh, and and Gawain as well. We we don't really get a good read on his justification of things. Uh, I was going to ask you what what's your take on? Obviously, he accepts this girdle and doesn't say. Is that because he thinks he will it will genuinely save his life, or is he hedging his bets? <laughs> it's a it's a lovely unanswered question again. Yeah. Uh huh. I think I think. I think we're. I think that's what we're encouraged to believe that he's he's he makes the decision because the lady tells him that the girdle will protect him. And I think although he hasn't at any point expressed fear about going to meet the Green Knight, I mean, there there is a real dread about it. You know, as you were saying, kind of going back to his sort of um, his uh, uh, the other knights at court, kind of all kind of talking behind his back and going, oh, it's, it's so sad that this knight's going to die," and uh, you know that 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 setup that we get in the first fit where Arthur clearly believes, and I guess they all believe that if Gawain just chops off the Green Knight's head, that's we're safe, we're home and safe. But oh dear, yeah. he's actually going to kill. So it's 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 an unwinnable quest for Gawain. He's been well and truly sort of stitched up. So I I, I think. Yes, there's there's a sense that he's he's grasping at something that that might save him, even though at other times he's sort of saying he's just going to rely on his, you know, the um his faith in in Mary and his faith in religion. That I was it was interesting. I was I was listening back to a, an interview with Simon Armitage about it, and he said he said that it's almost as if Gawain takes a girdle because he's he's been worn down 
And I think that's possible as well. That, you know, <laughs> yes. The lady's been sort of, you know, um, besieging him in his bedroom for three mornings and he's been walking this tightrope and she's tried to get him to take a ring and he's been a bit like, I can't take the ring. And mm. So she's like, oh, take this girdle. It's only a little thing. But having said that, I mean, it's actually, it's a, she says it's a simple thing, but it's an incredibly intimate thing, I think. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's it's not just that he's sort of obviously the 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 upshot is that he takes something and doesn't declare it to Bertalak, so he's sort of broken his faith. But the fact that he's mm. taken something that's kind of been round her body, I think, is is quite um is uh, is quite a, a, a an intriguing step as well. Yeah, because again, it's it's a bit of a question because yeah, I don't accept the ring because that's that's flagrant. Mm. Um, but I'll I'll wear some of your underwear. Yeah. No one will see that. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yes. like, it's really very strange and and there is reading too much of a on on behalf of the poet which is dangerous at this distance but there does seem to be a kind of subversive you know we have Gawain passing on kisses to his host and leaving for Bacchel wearing women's underwear that does seem to be a kind of a comic aspect or almost a ridiculous aspect too yeah yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think um, so. The girdle is is something that she had underneath her her dress, I think. But mm. um, I, I'm not sure we could necessarily call it underwear, even though that, that no. is hilarious. Now being a bit um, facetious there. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not a but, bra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think the kisses. Yeah, it's it's it, it does it feel that the, the relationship with Bertalak and the kissing does feel quite. It's not homoerotic, but it feels intimate, the kissing between the two. Mm. But having said that, as you say, we can't perhaps impose that back on the way it would have been seen at the, t- seen at the time. I think there's definitely a tension in terms of the loyalty between the man, the knight, the host and mm. the lady um, and the sort of the, the sort of the, the um, context of, of love and, and sex that she represents. Um, so there's very much attention there. Yeah, and it, it is really interesting. The Green Knight tests Gawain's religious faith and bravery, while the Lady of Bertilac's castle tests his honour, tempting him to blur knightly devotion with romantic love. We've discussed this grey area in relation to Edward II. The way his favourites heaped love talk on their king may have made some barons suspect them homosexual lovers hiding in plain sight. And this quirk of courtliness was still causing problems during the reign of Elizabeth I. Once again, open declarations of love could contain layers of sexual innuendo. The lady in our poem manipulates the language of chivalric love in an attempt to force Gawain to behave in a manner that contravenes his code. As David Mills writes, she does so by presenting herself as an innocent, thereby reversing her role from teacher of etiquette to pupil in love, a role often adopted by the knight. These complex verbal duels between the lady and Gawain are some of the most exciting passages in the poem, and so it's understandable that we feel some degree of disappointment when Morgan Le Fay is revealed as the mastermind over the provocative, transgressive lady. We've good reason to be surprised by this revelation. As Edith Whitehurst-Williams has written, The flaw in the plot rests on the fact that in a poem of 2,530 lines, scarcely 35 are devoted to the instigator of that action, and two-thirds of those lines occur after the denouement when her identity and purposes are revealed. The problem is not a question of rambling romance style, for Gawain's exploits are not random encounters by wooden stream. 
It must be quite deliberate then that Morgan operates from the sidelines. But that doesn't make her any less important. As Geraldine Heng writes, at once dismissed and elaborately justified by readers, reviled for its improbability and defended as crucial, Morgan's responsibility for the plot mechanism has been resurrected, debated, minimized, multiplied, classified, and reimagined only to be reappropriated once again, albeit with difficulty to serve the masculine narrative, whose priority customarily goes unchallenged. Morgan is a cultural transgressor in the patriarchal happiness of King Arthur's court. She is, as mentioned earlier, the only ugly part of a beautiful world. She's an old crone. Women who aren't young and beautiful have little to do and less to say in these kind of romances. Morgan is said to hold special loathing for Guinevere, and there is an implication here that the whole Green Knight scheme is concocted to terrify the Queen. Her hatred for her half-brother's wife may have led to her being conflated by some authors with her sister, Morgaus, with whom Arthur commits incest, leading to the birth of his bastard son, Mordred. Morgan is an inconvenient relation, bitter half-sister of Arthur and aunt of Gawain. Her very name associates her with feminine threat. According to Brian Stone, the mermaids of the Breton coast, who entice fishermen either killing them with their watery embraces or dragging them down to eternal bliss in their submarine palaces, are Morgans. Her purpose as a member of the Bertillac household is to reflect problems unspoken of at Camelot, chivalric hypocrisies and codes of honour that are at odds with Christian faith. T.H. White, after raiding Mallory for his own Arthurian saga, realised the whole story was what he called a regular Greek doom. Here, Morgan is its signifying crow. She is linked to Arthur not only by birth, but also by his death and resting place at Avalon. While the Green Knight represents seasonal change and rebirth for Gawain, a grander and better known sequence is indicated by his aunt. And what about um, chivalry as it exists in the poem and, the, and this tension that you mentioned between flattery and amorous um, mm. love and the sort of chivalry of the of the time of writing because there's a bit of a revival of that going on as well isn't there with Edward the mm. third and yeah. trying to bring back the round table and all, all of that sure. which is yeah roughly around the same time uh -huh. Uh -huh. is it wrong to think of them as as casting back to chivalry or or would it sort of exist culturally in a sort of unchanged way um I suppose you could argue that they're casting back to a myth of chivalry um mm. and Arthur is is the go-to for that isn't he still today uh yeah. and Camelot I mean it, it is such a sort of powerful icon so yes I mean I think you can imagine that, that stories that cast back to that and and this kind of real and what we get certainly in in the in the first fit is is this description of this very youthful um vibrant lively wealthy uh fun-loving court always makes me think of of the way that they the, uh they used the idea of camelot for kennedy didn't they jfk's sort of yeah uh, world yeah. as well it always reminds me of that so that kind of glamour about it i think and I've sort of lost track of what the question was originally now, but yes, <laughs> certainly, I think I think that there would have been a real sort of appetite for that round about that time, mm. because as you're saying, that whole myth was being revived and and borrowed from and adopted and adapted, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what's quite interesting about it is that the chivalric code, Gawain's code, is is he's using it as a measurement of his his goodness, his worth. Mm. 
And actually, if you if you think of it like that, that's just a theme that goes on and on and on and on through literature, right? It's the present day, isn't it? What what makes you a good person? What makes you good? What yeah. makes you valuable? So so yes, if you sort of set aside the the sort of the the code and and that well, the code is a sort of a historically specific thing then mm. the sort of the implications of it as you say are, are very human and very relevant so yeah the final words of the text are in latin and they read shame on him that thinks ill of it the motto of the order of the garter formed by edward the third in 1348 the legend has it that edward coined the motto after picking up a garter that had fallen off the countess of salisbury's leg during a dance in rather different circumstances, Gawain picks up the girdle of another lady, and once his trial is over, vows to wear it in a show of penance. Upon his return to Camelot, the court reassure him and pledge that they too will wear a band of green. The significance of this has attracted a lot of interest and speculation. Gawain's journey has been a private one, during which, as Edith Whitehurst Williams says, he has mastered and synthesised the forces of the shadow within his own nature and by virtue not only of his courage, loyalty and courtesy, but by his painful confrontation with human frailty, accepting the lace and flinching at the first blow, he has discovered himself to be fully a member of the human race. His fellow knights good-humouredly embrace him in it. They laugh at him as they would laugh at themselves, and their pledge to join him in wearing the lace is a pledge to join in a common humanity. Thus, as Leo Carruthers writes, the symbolism of the green girdle is inverted in the final stanza from a badge of shame to a badge of honour but it is one that also functions as an acknowledgement of defeat. Gawain's defeat extends to a failure on the part of chivalry, showing, as Ivo Camp says, how Camelot can behead the Green Knight but cannot kill him, because he represents Camelot's own fear of subversion, just as Arthur can banish his half-sister, but he cannot neutralise her. Purely into, into speculation now, why, why, in your opinion, because it's another great question of the poem, why does he get off because in, in so many ways he's sort of failed by his own standards mm. so um but he he doesn't meet his death and he gets to see another spring mm. um even if he's a little ashamed with himself um mm. mm-hmm. so is it uh is it as simple as he took the girdle or is it mercy or is it um you know being good outside of following codes mm-hmm. in your, just in your opinion yeah i mean so so bertilak slash green knight says doesn't he you know your your only fault is that you you wanted to live and mm. you know i can't blame you for that so there's there's a there's there's mercy and there's sympathy and there's a sort of a, a, a um a letting go of of those standards there a little bit i think um mm. i mean he's proved himself in so many other ways he's passed so many other tests yes i think i, th- I think there's there's a there's a um uh, there's an element, uh, there's, there's kind of a human understanding of of weakness there at the end. There's also, there's a falling back on the sort of the brotherhood element as well. You know, um, yeah, all right, you know, you, you, you took this off my wife, but hey, you know, we're knights together, we understand. Um, come back with my castle to me. I mean, who knows where that's going to lead? You know, that's another, that's another <laughs> whole other story that's not explored. So I think I think there's that. It's almost as if he kind of falls back into that fold of the brotherhood of of, of knights. And again, it, it kind of slips back to that idea of the game, doesn't it? I mean, even though this is so deadly, it was set up originally as a game, and at the end, mm. it's a bit like, oh well, you know, I'll 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 pretend to nearly kill you three times, but hey, <laughs> it's I let you off a game. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and it, and then it kind of falls back again on on explaining the whole frame of uh, Morgan Le Fay having 
set this up and then he slips in that she hoped that Guinevere would die of fright when the Green Knight turned up at the court so there's always mm. that sort of like really kind of nasty deadly thing kind of underlying it um yeah. but it's almost as if he's he's he, he's done what he needed Bertalak has carried out what he needed to do and now we're just going to step back out of it so yeah this yeah. this it's it's interesting I mean the the ending is is curious in so many ways it, so many things get unpacked out of the bag really quickly I think and it's almost like they try and tie it tie it up a little bit too quickly but yeah yeah I, I mean my the way the way I like to read it is that it's it's a kind of a, an acceptance of humanity and the fact that mm. we're not perfect and that's you know one of the lessons I think that, that Gawain learns so yeah and it comes back to the how important the passage of time is because had it been a kind of goof and he was sort of toying with him then it could have been a the Christmas game could have been you know you strike my head off and then I'll strike yours off straight afterwards and then I'll go, ah, I'm only having you on, go in, you know, Merry Christmas. Mm. <laughs> um, if it was that sort of prank, it's definitely not that. It's definitely, he has been tested um, yeah. by having to think about it for a year. That's what makes it so, so interesting because that, yeah. there's real intent behind there. It's not, yeah. there's no no way you can explain it off as a, as a sort of joke. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, we, I could ask questions about the, <laughs> about the ending for hours, I think. Yeah. Because um, I'm not sure thinking of Bertilak as a stooge, like a kind of puckish character of Morgan Le Fay, is he then sort of having fun within the rules he's been set? Is he sort of, you know, how much agency does he have? How much agency mm. does Lady Bertilak have? Mm-hmm. It just opens up wider and wider the more you think about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think this, this is yeah, it's something that you can, you can play with and think about. And, you know, has, has he made a decision to, to take this, roll on um with the mm. assistance of Morgan or has has Morgan got something over him but and she's sort of made him do it. Um you know he seems to be enjoying himself. Enormously, uh, <laughs> yeah. So um yeah and again, you know, we don't have we don't have that information. We're sort of no. given a tantalizing and- amount but not not as much as we'd like, I think. And on that note, I'm afraid to say we'll have to wrap things up uh for today. A huge thank you to Debbie Cannon for coming on the podcast and let me take this opportunity to remind you that tomorrow you can hear more from Debbie as I'll be releasing our extended interview uh, in which we discuss her play and how she got into medieval texts like Sir Gawain. So don't miss that. And in the meantime, you can check out her work in the link below. We'll be back very soon, but until then, happy reading.